from Revelation chapter 5. Revelation being, of course, the last book of the Bible. And then we'll meditate on what it's teaching us. Revelation chapter 5, hear God's word. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall Rain on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and All that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come now, send your Holy Spirit and illumine this passage in your word. Open our hearts and minds, our eyes, our, even our ears, Lord, we pray, to hear what you speak to us through this passage. And may we be changed by the gospel and go out from here and live as your ambassadors to a needy world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, it is good to see you again. Um, bring you greetings from University Presbyterian in Orlando, where I'm one of the pastors. And I must say, you outshine us with your decorations. I, this is just too much. It's very well done. Very beautiful. The first Sunday of Advent. It's a very significant season of the year. And you might have wondered, well, the book of Revelation is an odd passage to choose to speak on in Advent. We should be looking at the birth narratives in Matthew or Luke, right? But I can think of... No better passage than this one to zero in on the person and character of Jesus Christ who came into the world. 
obviously people puzzle over the book of Revelation. What does it mean? What's it all about? And I would sum it up with just simply two words. God wins. That's what it's about. God wins. And Jesus is the main character of the book of Revelation. The reason that the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation was to encourage people, not to make us puzzle over the end times. It was actually to encourage suffering Christians. And so I hope today that as we look at Revelation 5, you will be encouraged no matter what you're going through right now. One of my favorite things that I do as a pastor is teach a communicants class to children. I do that three or four times a year. And in the context of that communicants class, we go through the children's catechism. I I notice you guys do catechism and cookies even today. So you value catechism questions just as we do. And there are two questions I want to read to you and the answers too. And these will begin to help us to unlock the meaning of Revelation chapter 5. Question 22 says, In what condition did God make Adam and Eve? And the answer is, He made them holy and happy. Very simple answer. And then another question in the catechism says, How did Adam and Eve change when they had sinned? And the answer to that is, Instead of being holy and happy, they, they became sinful and miserable. Sinful and miserable. We are sinful. We've already admitted that in the worship service. We confessed our sins earlier. We disobey God's law. We don't obey all of His commandments all the time. We don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, nor our neighbors as ourselves. And we are miserable. We're subject to disease and temptation and fear and insecurity and doubt and depression and worry and anxiety and ultimately death. Those two ideas that we're sinful and miserable are going to help us understand Revelation 5. But what we're going to do is reverse the order. And if you're taking notes, here's my outline. The first thing we're going to look at is that we are miserable and we need someone strong to secure us. And the second thing I'm going to say is we are sinful and we need someone loving to save us. And both of those needs are met in the person of Jesus Christ. We are miserable and we are sinful. So let's Look at the first one that Revelation 5 is going to teach us. We are miserable, and we need someone strong to secure us. In other words, we need a lion. We need a lion. And I'll show you what I mean in a moment. This chapter of Revelation 5 opens with this amazing vision of God. It's a vision of God on a throne in heaven. And this vision actually began in chapter 4, which we don't want to take time to look at. But in chapter 4, John sees God encircled by a rainbow and surrounded by 24 elders. Now, we're not going to go into the meaning of all of these things. Just 
look at this language and think of how it, thinks, how it makes you think about God's majesty and grandeur. He's surrounded by these 24 elders as well as seven blazing lamps and four strange living creatures. And these creatures are continuously singing, holy, holy, holy. So that's chapter 4. But now in chapter 5, John sees more details about this vision of God. He says in verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now what is this scroll? Well, again, scholars and theologians have all kinds of ideas about what the scroll represents. But let me just summarize and say that in this scroll contains an amazing story a story about the future. The scroll contains God's plans and purposes. Uh, uh, you might say it's a blueprint, or a blueprint rolled up for things that are going to happen. Some things soon in John's own lifetime and some things much later. And these things are in chapters 6, 7, and 8. But the main point here that we want to zero in on is that this scroll is impossible to open. Did you catch that in verses 2 and 3? It says in verse 2 that a mighty angel proclaimed with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look into it. It's impenetrable. Its contents are a complete mystery. And John says in verse 4 that he began to weep because of that. It says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The other day I did a funeral in my church for a woman who was 53 years old who died of cancer. And she had just gone into the hospital about 10 days before her death, not aware that inside her body was a 25-pound tumor. And when the doctors opened her up and saw the extent of the damage that this cancer was doing, it was all over into her lungs, into her liver, into her kidneys. It was just beyond hope. And she died. She died of cancer at age 53, full of promise, full of life, In fact, her name is Joy. She was full of joy. And I and everyone who knew Joy just had to ask God the question, God, what was the purpose of that? Why? Why a woman in a very prime point of her life would die of cancer? I think of parents whose kids have wandered away from God. I ask, Lord, why? These parents have reared them as best they knew how to do. I think of men and women who go to church alone. I know some of them because their spouses aren't interested in spiritual things. I think of single parents whose husband or wife woke up one day and said, I don't love you anymore. I think of people who still carry in their hearts the wounds of a dysfunctional family or sexual abuse or of a broken home or of other things that they didn't choose but now must live with. 
I think of those who struggle every single day with depression or grief or the temptation of a besetting sin. And I think of my own struggles, and they are many. And I want to say to God, Lord, why do you write stories this way? We want to skip to the end of the story. We want to hear the words, and they lived happily ever after. We don't like the way the blueprint is written in many, many cases. But it won't happen. I can't open the scroll. I can't understand. I can't know the answer why at all in all occasions. Not even a million angels can look into the decrees of God and understand why He does what He does, for what purpose He does the things He does. So see, this is why I say we are miserable. We live in a broken world. We are broken people. We, our stories are very, very broken. And we suffer in all kinds of ways. And so what do we do? We, like John, weep. We weep over our frailty and our brokenness. We weep loudly because often we feel that no one in all the universe can help us. No one understands. No one can give us hope. So we enter into the feeling that John has here as he thinks about this scroll and its inscrutability and its mystery. But then comes verse 5. It says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Think about that verse a little bit. These images, Lion of Judah, Root of David. Where do those things come from? They come straight out of the Old Testament. Uh, Back in Genesis 49, it was predicted that a lion-like ruler would emerge from the tribe of Judah to deliver God's people. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 11 had said that the root of Jesse, that's the name of David's father, would one day stand as a banner for the peoples. So this is Jesus that we're talking about here. The Lion of Judah is Jesus Christ. He was born of who? Mary and Joseph of the tribe of Judah. He came from the line of David and was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Jesus can open the scroll. Jesus can do what no other man and no angel in the universe can do. He may not tell you, and He usually doesn't, what's in the scroll. But He can give you security and strength to persevere as you struggle. Why? Because He is the Lion of Judah. That's why. He's the King of the jungle. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's sovereign. And that's the one whose birth we celebrate in Advent. Now, i got to tell you, I listen to some of the Christmas songs that come over the loudspeaker in the malls. I look at some of the precious moments figurines that pretend to picture the birth of Jesus. I look at some of these manger scenes. I go in some of the Christian bookstores that have all of this sentimental stuff about Christmas. And I just about want to throw up because it's so inaccurate. 
Jesus is not a cute little baby in a manger. He's not weak and helpless. He's the Lion of Judah, for goodness sake. Can you imagine an animal better suited to symbolize strength and majesty and power than a lion? Lions are predatory carnivores. They're among the animal kingdom's most brutal and efficient predators. They mainly eat large animals, like zebras. hate to gross you out, but they eat zebras and wildebeests and things like that, weighing from 100 to 1,000 pounds. They've even been known to attack and kill elephants. They're fast, too. Lions can reach speeds of up to 60 miles per hour. A male lion's roar can be heard from five miles away. Many of you have read, I'm sure, C.S. Lewis's amazing Chronicles of Narnia. The first uh, book that we normally read, of course, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which we meet Aslan the Lion, who is typical of Jesus Christ. Well, when Peter and Susan and Lucy see Aslan for the very first time, you might remember what C.S. Lewis said in that moment. He writes this, People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of that now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they caught just a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found that they couldn't look at him and they went all trembly. They went all trembly. You know, people in the Bible who saw Jesus went trembly sometimes. Whenever people in the Old Testament saw the Son of God before the incarnation, they fell down and worshipped. It was just inevitable. They just had to do it. They couldn't help it. Earlier even in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, the first time John sees Jesus, he says, I fell at His feet as though dead. He went all trembly. So you see why Jesus is the Lion of Judah. We're miserable, you and I. We are afraid and lonely and worried and filled with doubt. And not only that, we have enemies. Satan and his demons oppose us at every turn. So what do we need? We need someone to secure us. Someone strong. Someone who will defeat our enemies. Someone unafraid. That's Jesus, the Lion of Judah. He has come to us. And verse 5 says that He has conquered. He's in control. So, friends, trust Jesus. When you're miserable, when you're feeling the effects of your broken condition, trust in Christ, the Lion of Judah, and weep no more. But we need more than a lion. If Jesus were all lion, we would be absolutely terrified. We would be trembly all the time. We would run away from Him. If He were all strength, He would be no different from a dictator or a tyrant. No, this passage goes on to say that not only are we miserable and we need someone strong, it also says that we are sinful and we need someone loving To save us. In other words, we need a lamb. (laughs) 
Not just a lion, but a lamb. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that John... uh, Here's how I envision the transition between 5 and 6. I envision John wiping away his tears, and he looks up. It says in verse 5, weep no more. So he's beginning to wipe away his tears. And then in verse 6, it says that between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw... And instead of seeing a fearsome lion, John says, I saw a lamb. Isn't that amazing? The the juxtaposition of these two things. Instead of seeing this fearsome creature, he looks up to see a lamb. Now notice five things about this lamb in verses 6 and 7. Real quick, he, he uses a special Greek word for lamb in verse 6. It's arnion, which doesn't mean a lot to you, I suspect, but it means little lamb or delicate lamb. John wants to make sure that the picture we get about this lamb is not this mighty, big, awesome, fearsome lamb, if there were such a thing, but he wants us to get the picture of humility and gentleness and meekness. This lamb, secondly, looks as though it had been slain It bears on its body the mark of a fatal wound. This lamb had been slaughtered. The Greek phrase there literally means it had its throat cut. But thirdly, John says in verse 6 that the lamb is not lying down dead or not even limping along in its pain, but it says that he is standing. See, this lamb is alive. He has conquered death. And notice that the lamb is the center of attention here in, ver- in uh, chapter 5. He's standing, it says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. Now, I didn't want to go into detail about what these things might represent, but, but basically I think they represent nature and the church. So Jesus is standing in the center of attention of all of creation and especially of all of His people. And it says in verse 6 that he has seven horns and seven eyes. Now, I know that our just, you know, this is way beyond our capacity to, to envision. But seven horns, seven eyes, these things figuratively represent something. The seven horns represent strength and power. So this is a strong lamb, represents omnipotence. And the seven eyes represent wisdom and knowledge. We think they're of omniscience. And in verse 7, finally, the lamb, it says, took the scroll, the scroll that was rolled up and inscrutable, he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And then what happens next is that all heaven breaks loose. It says in verse 9 that the four creatures, the elders, begin this singing of a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. But, but here's the main idea. Jesus Christ, here's what I want you to get. He is not only a lion, He is also a lamb. That is, He is a sinless, spotless, submissive lamb who allowed Himself to be slaughtered on the cross for you and for me as payment for our sin. 
I read not long ago about a fellow by the name of Jason Dunham. Dunham. Maybe you've heard of Jason Dunham. Back in 2004, Dunham was a Marine corporal serving in Iraq. Uh, He was leading a patrol in an Iraqi town near the Syrian border when he and his men stopped a convoy of cars. And a man in one of those cars jumped out and grabbed Dunham by the throat and started to choke him. And the two fought hand to hand. And while they were fighting, this attacker somehow managed to pull out a grenade and pull the pin and drop it right there on the ground. Dunham took off his helmet, dropped to the ground, and covered the grenade as best he could with his body. Immediately it went off and shrapnel pierced his skull. The grenade exploded underneath Jason Dunham. He never regained consciousness. And eight days later, he died at Bethesda Naval Hospital in Maryland. You might remember him because President Bush awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor posthumously to Jason Dunham in 2007. It was the first Medal of Honor of the Iraq War. I tell you that story because I think Jason Dunham was both a lion and a lamb in his behavior. He was strong enough to fight the enemy, but loving enough to die for his friends. See, Jesus Christ is like that. Or maybe I should say Jason Dunham is like Jesus Christ, the consummate lion and lamb. Jesus is lion-like. He's a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. Only Jesus, though, didn't fall on a grenade to save a few men. He fell on a cross to save a multitude of people, as it says in verse 9, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Think about how rare it is. Do you know many human beings who perfectly combine both character traits in one person of hardness and power like a lion on the one hand and softness and gentleness like a lamb on the other hand? But Jesus Christ brings both of those seemingly opposite attributes together in His one person. You might know that one of the Psalms refers to that. Psalm 62, 11 and 12 says, One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. Isn't that interesting? that that psalm, the psalmist, was looking forward to this same vision of Jesus in Revelation 5 as both Lion of Judah and Lamb of God. Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite uh, figures from church history, once preached a sermon on Revelation 5. And let me read you a couple of things he says. The sermon was called, The Excellency of Christ. And here's Jonathan Edwards back in the early 1700s. There meets in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condescension, infinite justice and infinite grace, infinite glory and lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness, absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. 
Beautifully written words. You see that combination of lion and lamb in the Christmas story too, don't you? Christmas is a story about what? A king. A powerful king coming to earth to save his people. But where is he born? He's born in a dark, dank, smelly cave in a no-name town instead of a palace. On Christmas morning, angels shouted his praises while he cried for his mother's milk. The omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent creator of the universe came to set his people free, but who noticed? But a few poor shepherds and astronomers from a pagan country. The Lion of Judah, you see, chose to use his power not to abuse, but to serve sinful human beings as the Lamb who takes away our sins. That's Revelation 5. What do we do with it? What's that meant to do for us? Maybe a story would help. I have a friend, I'll call him Jim, that's not his real name, but Jim used to be, used to be, Miserable and sinful. For years, my friend Jim would stop to pick up a couple of six-packs and a bottle of vodka and drink himself to sleep every single night. But not before he had yelled at his wife and scared his kids. His wife couldn't take it anymore. She moved out and took the children with her. Jim, now alone, comforted himself with booze and the arms of another woman. So, to make a long story short, my friend Jim came to the end of himself. He cried out to the Lion of Judah out of his misery and to the Lamb of God out of his sin to come to his rescue. He asked Jesus for help. He found his way into our church. He heard and believed the gospel He started going to AA and went to a, still goes to a Christian counselor. See, Jim discovered that the Lion of Judah saw him in his weakness and wanted to give him security, real security, and saw him in his sin and wanted to save him and love him. And so Jim believed in Christ. He knew he had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so he trusted in the Lamb of God. He knew that he was weak and helpless, so he put his faith in the Lion of Judah. And my friend Jim is now walking the road of recovery and reconciliation with his family, so it's good news. He's becoming holy and happy, all because of the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. wonder where you are today. What are you struggling with? How are you feeling your misery? How are you knowing the weight and burden of your sin? Wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you're dealing with, trust in the one who, as C.S. Lewis said, is both good and terrible at the same time. And fall down before him this Advent season and join the chorus of heaven and say to Jesus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. May that wonderful person who combines these things in himself bless you richly during Advent. And let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, thank you. This is just, it blows our minds. It is just beyond our comprehension to think of who you really are. Both good and terrible at the same time. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Father, if there be any people in the room today who, like my friend, are feeling their misery and feeling their sin and don't know where to go and don't know who to turn to, Lord, give them hope. Help them not to conclude that there is no one to help them. Help them weep no more, but believe in the one who has come and will come to their aid. Lord, thank you so much for your love. Thank you that you're the lamb who was slain to bring us into the family of God. And we pray and love you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.